I'm Alex and welcome to my podcast. Here I have a conversation with physicists who work on cutting-edge research applied to help solve humanitarian issues around the globe. Today I bring to you my conversation with Professor Kato Simpson, a physicist and chemist currently at the University of Arkham. She graduated with a PhD in Medical Sciences in the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. Later on, she moved on to study photonics and founded a photon factory and an Engender Tech Limited. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Alexander. Could you please tell us about your current research and work with the Engender Technologies Limited and what inspired you to begin this research? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so Engender Technologies is a company that uses microfluidics and photonics to sort sperm by sex for the dairy industry. So the goal is to allow farmers to choose the sex of the offspring. So for a cow to make milk, which is what a dairy farmer wants, she has to have a calf. And um, in many cases, the female calf is much more valuable than the male calf. And so we use um, lasers and um, channels that are the dimension of a human hair, microfluidics, in order to do that. Um, we're still a, a, an R&D company, so um, we're still in the research and development phase of all of that, uh, which is very exciting. So we have a team of about 15 to 20 people um, who are working very hard right now under COVID lockdown to um, deliver that technology. The thing that inspired me to do it was the, the big challenge. Um, so I met a dairy investor who took me out for coffee and said, there are five problems facing the dairy industry. Can you help with any of these? And um, the sperm sorting challenge looked like the one that had the most physics kind of solution to it. So um, we said, sure, we, we can help with that. Um, but we're not sperm researchers and we hadn't done any microfluidics uh, before that. And so we basically took all of our expertise and put together a project that solved a particular problem. And that is, that's the way I like to do science. I think that's the, the most fun way to do science. When you see a challenge, something you really, really want to achieve, and you kind of assemble a team and all the expertise and knowledge that you need uh, to be very creative and innovative when you solve that challenge. I understand that you graduated with a PhD in medical sciences. So could you please tell us about how that has shaped your transition to your current research? Sure. Um, so my PhD is in medical sciences because uh, when I was at university, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I was going to go get an MD and a PhD and do neurosurgeon, uh, neurosurgery as my sort of clinical practice and do brain research. Um, I kind of moved by the time I was done with my undergraduate to, to thinking more about doing immune research. So um, my PhD started looking at allergy responses. So it turns out that when you have an allergic reaction to something, there's a cell that's shaped round. It's like this, it's called a mast cell. And when your, um, your immune system responds to something like ragweed, that cell goes from having little microvilli all over the surface and being round to flattening out. And I was very, very interested in how that worked. I wanted to know how it worked and what it meant and did it change the way immune um, reactions happened. Uh, and that's how I started my PhD. But while I was studying that, I was, um, I was looking at things like how receptors aggregate on a two-dimensional surface, like in a membrane. So part of that process is you've got little receptors sticking up, they bind to something and they come together like that. And I was trying to understand the kinetics in two dimensions, you know, the rates of reactions in two dimensions and how that did with three dimensions. But all I'd ever had was um, really biology classes. I'd never had any um, real mathematics. I'd had one semester of calculus as a university student and, um, and, and no advanced physics or advanced chemistry. So I'd never taken physical chemistry even. 
And so I took, as a PhD student, I, I took undergraduate physical chemistry. And I absolutely fell in love with quantum mechanics. So the idea that, that the electrons in a molecule or, or on an atom are simply the three-dimensional standing waves that you get if you were to ring a sphere in outer space just really fired my rockets. And by the end of that, I had completely switched my PhD. So I was halfway through a PhD in medical sciences studying the immune system. And I switched at that point to studying how molecules convert light into more useful forms of energy, which is very chemical physics. So I moved, I moved all the way across the campus into the chemistry department. I used lasers. Um, I studied my own hemoglobin. So all that work in the biology and the medical school meant that I had all the skills I needed to be able to go pop a vein and isolate my own hemoglobin. But what really fascinated me was the fact that, you know, the, the heme that makes your blood red, you know, we live in the atmosphere of the sun. So we absorb light constantly. That's the, the red in your hemoglobin is really, really absorptive, but it absorbs a tremendous amount of energy. And so what happens to that energy? In some molecules, like in vision, it gets converted to mechanical motion, right? That's the first step in vision is that. In molecules that are in trees or, or plants, it gets converted to a little battery. You do an electron transfer, right? But in your blood, you don't want it to do anything because the molecule that makes your blood red is the same one that carries oxygen from your lungs to your tissues. And you absolutely don't want that one doing any chemical reactions, photochemical reactions. And so what it does is it takes all of that energy in like a blue photon, which is a ton of energy, and it wicks it straight out of the system in 50 femtoseconds. 50 millionths of a billionth of a second. That's faster than the atoms themselves can move for some of those motions. And so you can probably tell because I'm pretty excited at this point. That's what fired my rockets. And so that's what I ended up doing my PhD in. And that meant that my career trajectory was then a PhD in medical sciences, but I got a job in a chemistry department in the United States at Case Western. And then my next job was actually in physics and chemistry here in the University of Auckland. So yeah. could you please talk a bit about the research that goes on at the Photon Factory now? Yeah, so the Photon Factory um, was really cool. All the research I did in the United States. So when, when you get your PhD, then you go do a postdoc, and then you, get, you become an assistant professor, and eventually you get tenure, and then you get promoted to professor, and that's, that's kind of a typical academic career. So in the United States, I got all the way up to the tenure part. So I, I, I got tenure and promotion to associate professor, and I did that in a lab in the States studying that really fundamental light matter interaction stuff. And the details of what I was looking at were things like, how does the symmetry of the molecule affect how the energy moves around? You know, does it make it simpler and faster or does it make it slower? And so asking and answering those sorts of questions, no applications whatsoever. You know, the idea of success in that kind of research is that I'll understand something really awesome. And in 15 years, it might show up in an undergrad physical chemistry textbook. Um, so, you know, people say, oh, you're just after the Simpson effect. Actually, I don't care at all if it's, if it has my name on it. What I really care about is that understanding. So that would have just, that would have been so exciting. I moved to New Zealand and it gave me an opportunity to actually take that research that I was doing and kind of make it face outward. So, um, you know, there, there's that kind of sense that you do curiosity driven research, the joy of puzzle solving. And I definitely have that. And that's, that's what all that fundamental stuff was. But also, you want to be able to do good with your science. Um, you want to have, like, I have a very strong sense of purpose. 
I want my science to, to achieve something. And, and so coming to New Zealand um, meant that I had suddenly a new, like a clean slate, and I could start my research again with that second part having a higher priority. And so the photon factory actually is, was set up, so I set up the photon factory to do that externally facing research, but using these exotic laser pulses. And so um, it was really exciting to start from ground zero and, and kind of, I spent about three years doing strategic planning, talking to other people in New Zealand, trying to figure out how the femtosecond laser pulses that I use to probe molecules and how they, they react to being energized could be used for the dairy industry or for micromachining or for inventing new types of um, biomedical devices. And so the photon factory grew grew from that kind of um, that vision and that that desire to really um, make an impact today, not just 15 years from now in a textbook and maybe 50 years from now in a device. Um, yeah, so we, we started with a basic laser system. Um, we opened our doors in 2010 with a femtosecond laser system and um, and about three people. And within 10 years, um, we, we, had, we were the, the first people in the world ever to be able to control both the spatial and the temporal um, shapes of femtosecond laser pulses and then use those to do micromachining. We've done dozens and dozens of contracts with industry. We have two spin-out companies, and gender is one that came out of that work. Um, and the people are just fantastic. It's a group of 50 scientists and engineers um, of all different disciplines and all different age ranges, all working together to achieve some really awesome stuff. I love it. I agree. This networking is very important, especially if you want to make your scientific research have impact. As you've mentioned previously, what, one type of research that you like doing is the sort of fundamental research made for research, right? And that's often where most of your inspiration start off. What's your advice on when you're trying to propose a research a proposal to venture capitalists and alike for funding? What do you think is the thing that makes that understand, hey, this is science, this is something uncertain, but yes, we are still going to give you the money. That's a really interesting question, and that's one that comes up more and more. Um, so I think the key is that it's, it's not about going out and talking about what you do or what you love or what your research is. It's about going out and listening to what problems need to be solved. Right. And so a venture capitalist is not typically going to give someone research, uh, research funding. If, if you go say, look, I have this really fascinating idea for how I might improve solar energy harvesting by affecting the way that energy moves around inside a molecule. So it absorbs light. It moves that energy around. And what I'm going to do, I have some hypotheses about how I might make it more efficiently do electron transfer. Right. So that I can improve a solar energy unit. I'll never get a venture capitalist interested in that because it's way, it's too fundamental and it's too risky at the fundamental level and it's too far away. They, they can't see how you're going to turn that into something that's going to give them return on investment. Um, and so what you have to do, I think, um, what's worked well for us is partner with the people who have the need. So like that first person who took me out for coffee and said, you know, there's a problem facing the dairy industry. Well, when we pitched that to get funding from venture capital or other investors, we had to have a business case behind what we were trying to achieve. 
and he was the expert on the business case. So recognizing that he was the expert on that and I was the expert on the physics and chemistry was really important to our ability to work together going forward. So I used to joke that we had a deal. I wouldn't write the business case if he didn't try to run the laser. But that's really true. So you have to value all of that business case side of, of what you're trying to achieve. Um, that's very hard for people to learn, especially if what they're doing, they have a really great idea and they can kind of see from where their idea is to what it's going to look like at the end, but there's nothing in between. You know what I mean? The, the bridge in between is missing. That's why you need to find some people who love thinking about money. Sometimes that's hard for scientists. And I have some colleagues who think that, you know, going after venture capital or going after applied science, that that's somehow dirty. You know what I mean? It's not pure science. Um, I, I disagree 100%. It's 100%. You know, the reason we have cell phones, the reason that we have electric vehicles, a lot of that is enabled by people who are trying to make money. Um, and they are, in many ways, the grease in the wheels that makes innovation move. It, it, it pulls it that much more strongly. And we should respect their expertise and their points of view, um, understand what they're after, um, but yeah, and, 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 and tap into that expertise and that energy. When, I'm, when I have a, st a student or a, an emerging researcher who's got an idea, so I'll give you a good example. Um, one of the postdocs in my lab got really excited about designing a handheld device, like a tricorder, that, that you put up against a mole and it tells you whether it's melanoma or not. So New Zealand has more higher incidence of melanoma than anywhere else in the world. And what we want is to have the highest melanoma diagnostic rate. Right. And so it's the challenge. It's really a difficult technical challenge to do that. Um, and so we have a, a fund in New Zealand that you can apply to. It's got really low funding rates, but it's designed for that really early stage idea. And so I partnered her up with an intern from the business school who was really keen on startups. And together they wrote both the science case and the business case. And then I look at it with my expertise and some of my colleagues who do investment for a living, we kind of poke holes in it and, you know, fix it up and give advice. And she actually won that bid and she's now um, two and a half years into that project. It's very exciting. She's doing clinical trials. She's showing um, that she can analyze those. She's using lasers, laser spectroscopy. She can analyze those and identify melanomas or other types of skin diseases. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess that's my advice. You won't be able to get money from a venture capital, um, a capitalist for everything. And you shouldn't even try. Yeah. That really captures the essence of this podcast because it's specifically made to talk about the transition between the technology you and I use and how did it start off as a research idea in the lab. So now suppose that it's your turn to fund something. You've won a large sum of money. Where would you invest this and why? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so one of the best pieces of advice I ever got while I was learning how to do this kind of, um, even grant, whether, whether you're talking about funding a, a, a fundamental science proposal, or you're talking about sort of investing in a more commercially facing idea that has technology impact. Um, the best piece of advice I ever got was that you should always seek to invest in an A plus team, even if they have a B idea, but never the other way around. So the best idea in the world, an A plus idea will fall over if the team is only a B plus team. So I look to the team first. Do you have the right expertise? 
are you fighting with each other while you're presenting your idea to me? Do you know what I mean? It's surprising how many times I'll see a team of three or four um, emerging researchers, uh, and I'm talking all the way down, we've, we've worked with people in middle school, you know, all the way up to, to you know, full professors. Um, and the group of three or four of them that are pitching the idea, that are trying to get me to, to engage and give them space in the lab, usually not money, but space in the lab and some help, they're arguing with each other about what the most important part is or what the best outcome is or how they're gonna do it. Um, so, so the team itself is the critical thing. And, and, and that actually um, gets to the heart of, of what science research and development is all about. I mean, yes, we tend to think of it as like, you know, it's my cell phone is the most important thing or it's, it's the sperm sorting device, but actually it's the people. So science and engineering is all done by people. And when the people work well together and you've got the right mix of optimists and pessimists, people who are driven by money and people who don't care at all about money, you know, you've got the programmers and the guys who can do the hardware. Then you've got a good team that can solve almost anything. So I always look to the team first and the idea second. Definitely. Ideas can always evolve. So that's, and especially with a good team, it's going to evolve faster and improve. That's something I agree it's with. It's true. Yep, ideas are a dime a dozen. Smart people have tons and tons of ideas. The real challenge is turning ideas into reality. Yeah. Complex numerical and physical simulations with quantum mechanics often require hard computational power. Is this, mm -hmm. this computational power a current barrier in photonics? Um, so photonics, like most other areas, um, are the, the, the kind of field of photonics, um, it, it's kind of hard to really call it a field because it's a bit like electronics you know what i mean it's more of an enabling technology like we just released a study um here in new zealand that uh told people that the photonics industry is a 1.2 billion dollar industry in new zealand that's the same size as our wine industry but nobody knows about it because it shows up in weird places like in your phone or in your internet right um photonics as an industry if you want to think about it that way is doing what everybody else is doing which is trying to tap into machine learning and ai as fast as it possibly can right so the advantage that those types of methods give is that kind of adaptability in machine learning um the the in some ways um the analogy i guess i would like to use is if you've ever looked at a spectrum of something so you shine light on some molecule or some system and what you get back is a really complicated set of wiggles and ups and downs right and in the past entire phds were done trying to figure out how to identify what one or two even of those peaks actually referred to what are they which motions of the molecule and how does how do those motions reflect the function of the system right so that kind of structure um, spectrum function analysis is a key component of a lot of science. Machine learning, artificial intelligence has the potential to be able to take those really complex data sets where we as humans can't necessarily recognize patterns and do the analysis in a way that tells us more than we can see with our own eyes or, or with a forward thinking approach. I mean, I can go in and fit a spectrum. I can tell you where carbon-carbon double bonds typically show up in a spectrum. But if I look at something like one of our projects right now is designing a probe that evaluates the nutritional status of a muscle farm. So this is a nonlinear, ultra-fast spectroscopy-based probe that will be at the end of a fiber that you drop off a boat into a muscle farm. And the spectra we're going to get there are not going to have any control 
uh, about what the conditions are at all, right? We're trying to identify numbers of plankton and type of plankton by looking at a really complex mix of peaks and valleys. And that's where things like artificial intelligence and machine learning can really make a huge difference. So they, know, they, they remove the, the barrier that comes when you have to identify and assign every single piece of information in order to extract a pattern. Um, so I think they're going to transform the way we can do things. And that's just one example. You know, um, I think AI and um, machine learning, the power in that is everywhere. I think we're still a little bit in the height part of the curve. Have you ever seen that height curve? You know, where you go up and then you come down into the valley of, of, of despond and then you go back up the other side. I think we're still in a bit of the hype curve because, yeah, I've gone out and pitched um, like one of our companies and every other company has talked about using AI for everything from, you know, an app that helps you choose what you want to order through Uber to um, organizing your yoga classes. Um, yeah, to, to, to everything. It's definitely important to remember that machine learning and AI cannot fundamentally, they do not fundamentally know the laws of physics. So that's something yes. that many people have to take into account. Yes, yes. And I think the other thing, you know, you'll often hear people talk about big data, you know, that big data is going to solve everything. And, and you can see it now, like in the agriculture sector, there are all sorts of companies that are sending drones out and they're taking all this hyperspectral imaging and they're collecting all this big data and they're saying, so this is going to, what's missing there is the wisdom. So you have to connect big data, this sort of what you're saying, you have to connect all of that data to something that you tell the farmer to change. Do you know what I mean? It's, the real key there is in the wisdom. And, and in some ways, um, that's, that's an analogy for what, you know, that's analogous to what you just said. For machine learning and AI to do anything, they have to know, they have to know some truth. You have to feed them some truth. <laughs> yeah. So in 10, 20 years, what's your current vision for what your research is? Oh, that's a really good question. So in 10 or 20 years, I hope that when I look back, um, the people that have been doing the research in the lab have gone off and had very successful careers doing the things that they wanted to do with their research. So I, I'm fairly careful about saying that. So the research itself of course I want it to have an impact, you know? Uh, of course I still want the fundamental stuff to wind up in a physical chemistry textbook, you know, uh, teaching us, opening up our, our understanding of, of how nature works. Um, and and, and that, that would just be, yeah, awesome. I would also love to see, you know, the, the sperm sorting equipment, for example, I, I wanna see that as a product. I wanna see that helping. So, so the consequences of getting that right are things like, um, you know, right now, India has more dairy cows than anywhere else on the planet. Um, and they're anticipated to grow the number of dairy cows while they only improve their productivity per cow just a little bit. Sperm sorting would allow you to use genetic improvement so that you could actually make more milk, which is a fanta fantastic food source, protein, energy, all of that stuff. You could make more milk with fewer cows. And so what does that do? That reduces the environmental footprint of dairy farming. And, and, all, and, and that's just one place where that kind of sperm sorting could have a humongous impact. If some, if some research that we did meant that 20 years from now, India had fewer dairy cows but was making more milk, that would, I, would be, I would be just over the moon delighted about that. But I think because I'm a university professor, the first thing that I think about is the people. 
So even if Engender falls over, 20 or 30 people have come through Engender. They've seen their ideas turn into real outcomes. They've, they've worked their asses off on something that's really innovative that has an important values-driven outcome. And even if, God forbid, we don't succeed making our technology, those people will go out and seed that kind of innovative, creative spirit all across New Zealand and the rest of the world. And, and that, for me, on some level, as a university professor, is part of my product. Um, I tend to teach first year, the large first year classes. I haven't done it for a couple of years because at the moment I'm seconded to this company. But at one point I was on track to teach 1% of the entire population of New Zealand. They would come through my first year chemistry or physics classes and then go away. And, and the idea that you can, you can have an influence on how they think about things and how they go on to be successful in their own careers, um, that I find really exciting as well. You know, there are so many challenges at the moment. If you go to, UNESCO has a set of um, goals now, sustainability goals. Um, you've probably seen them. If you go and look at those goals, you can tie almost every one. There are things like um, getting rid of food inequality, um, having clean drinking water, having secure food sources, all of those sorts of things, you know, um, a new type of, you know, we need new forms of energy that are clean. Every single one of those can be solved to some degree by science and engineering. And it's the people that are actually your generation that are going to do that. So the people in my generation, my job is actually to help you guys that are curious and driven and energetic and you have all these new ideas to give you space so that you can come in and, and make those ideas a reality. Um, and, and that for me is the most exciting part of my job. There's my conversation with Professor Kather Simpson. As Steve Jobs has once said, Work backwards from the customer experience before working on the tech. Work with a team that possesses the changing skill set to adapt. Who knows, maybe one day my interest in physics and mathematics will be changed to a PhD in economics. The future is uncertain, but I want to learn as much as I can, such that I can work with as many people as I can, and learn from them as well.